Let me also welcome you this morning officially. My name is Rob Sweet. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. We have a team of teachers just as we have a team of worship leaders, as Tim was reminding us. Uh, We're excited you're here. Maybe it's your first time here. Um, I have to tell you, we don't always have food after the services, although that would be one way to grow a church, wouldn't it? In more ways than one, we could grow together. Uh, but, but we are excited about this morning. It's a fun morning. It's a special morning. Um, maybe you weren't expecting a community meal. I hope that you'll hang around just for 10 or 15 minutes after our worship service is done and enjoy this with us. Maybe you forgot to bring something. That's okay. You don't have to bring. The, the first service, we had plenty, more than enough. And from the looks of things, I think that's going to be true as well, this service. So join us, please. I'm going to preach a shortened message this morning. Now, that's really difficult for me to do. In fact, I promised these guys. I said, all right, I've got my time. I know my time. I'm going to stick to my time. I even did three run-throughs, all right? That's unusual. I never do three run-throughs. And I nailed my time. And then I got up here for service, and I, I finished preaching. I looked at the clock, and I just blown past it. And so uh, I'm going to do better this time. That's my hope. That's my prayer. Uh, We have an important topic. You know, we've been in this series on the Word of God, written, living, and active. And this morning we get to a sermon called God's Word is True. I was thinking about uh, an analogy or an illustration I wanted to share with you. Uh, My dad is a pilot. He was a career pilot in the Air Force. Um, And after he got out of the Air Force, he continued to fly planes. And he took me up a number of times. I got to kind of be the co-pilot, if you will, with my dad on a number of occasions. And I remember one of the things he told me that always stuck with me is he said, it's critical for a pilot to trust his instruments. And then he would give me an example of what could happen if you don't trust your instruments. And he'd say, imagine, Rob, that we were flying in cloud cover, or maybe it was pitch black at night, or maybe we were in fog, and you could no longer see the horizon. You can't really tell where the earth is and the sky is. And by the way, that's very common for pilots to be flying in those conditions. He says, you actually have to have special certification to fly in those conditions, It's called instrument flight rules. You have to learn to trust your instruments. You have to learn how to read them, how to put confidence in them. And and he gave me an illustration. I want to give you the same illustration. In fact, I've got uh, an airplane on the ground here I want to show you. Now, this is the Turbo 2000 glider. I picked it up at Hobby Lobby yesterday. My 7-year-old daughter and my 7-year-old nephew wanted me to tell you that they put the stickers on. So it's quite, quite good work here. But here, here's what happens. I'll tell them you clapped. That's nice. Um, here, here's what can happen. Let's say this, this pilot is in a complete fog, and he can't see anything. Now, he'll, he'll know, okay, I've got to turn to the right because I need to get on a certain heading. So he'll, he'll turn to the right, and initially, he can feel the turn in his inner ear, right? Your sense of balance. And you guys have been on airplanes. You can actually feel that. The problem is, if you keep this bank, this turn, for any length of time, your equilibrium in your inner ear kicks in, and now it feels like you're going straight. You're still turning. In fact, you're probably losing altitude, right, slowly as you do your turn, but it feels like you're straight. So if you're not looking at your gauges, your instruments, in fact, one instrument in particular you need to be looking at is called your attitude indicator. I'll put a picture of it on the screen so you can see what this looks like. This attitude indicator shows you where you are in relation to the horizon. So you can see there's a little bit of a bank turn in this particular case. If you're not watching that, you will, after a while, feel like you're going straight. And then you might say, oh, I thought I needed to be in a turn. 
And so then you turn some more, and what's happening now is now you're banking steeper and losing more altitude. And after a while, that feels like you're straight again. This actually happens. In fact, there have been hundreds of crashes of aircraft lost, hundreds of pilots and passengers that have lost their lives because of this phenomenon. It's called spatial disorientation. So pilots have to learn early in their training that they cannot trust their instincts. They cannot trust their sense of balance, at least not for very long. Now, in an airplane, as in life, you and I must declare something to be our horizon. We must declare something to be our guiding instrument, our our true north, if you want to think about it that way. And here's what is true. You only have two options, something internal to you or something external to you. And if you don't choose something external to you, you will by default Simply trust your own instincts. Simply trust your own sense of direction. Simply trust your own sense of balance. And just as an airplane as in life, my question is, how much can you really trust yourself, your own sense of up and down and left and right? As followers of Jesus Christ, our guiding instrument, our true north, is the Word of God, which is written, which is living, which is active. This is what we've been talking about now for the better part of two months So what do we want to say about that this morning, this very important topic that we believe that God's word is actually true? I might say it this way, what you believe about the truthfulness and trustworthiness of this book is critical. In fact, I would even say that your life path, your flight path, to use that analogy, your life path will be determined by how much you do or do not trust the words in this book. So here's a brief overview of where we're going in this message this morning. I want to talk about what we believe about the truthfulness of Scripture here at Fellowship Bible Church, and then I want to talk about why we believe it. I'm going to give you two big reasons, two primary reasons we believe it to be true, and then thirdly, how it can make a difference in our lives. Because I believe that actually putting confidence and trust in the words of this book, and specifically God speaking to us through these words, will make an enormous difference in our lives. Let's jump in. Number one, what we believe about the truthfulness of the Bible. I want to read to you a sentence from our doctrinal statement, Fellowship Bible Church. By the way, that's easily accessible on our website. If you haven't read through it recently, I'd encourage you to do so. It's not a long document, but it's well written. Under the heading, the scriptures, you'll find these words. We believe that the scriptures in all 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are verbally inspired of God, error-free in the original manuscripts, and the supreme authority of faith and practice for followers of Christ. I want to reread just a part of that. We believe that the scriptures in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are verbally inspired of God, error-free in the original manuscripts. Let's talk about that phrase for just a minute. This is an articulation of the doctrine of inerrancy. That word inerrant or inerrancy simply means without error. You might say it this way, we believe the Bible is without error or fault in all that it teaches. Now, a couple things that are important to note about this. Number one, I think it's important to keep in mind, especially today in our day and age, that this view of the scripture has been the consistent 
predominant view through 2,000 years of church history. All the way back to the earliest church. This has been the assumed, the implied, the firmly held belief that this book is entirely true, that it is entirely trustworthy. Another way to say it, Fellowship Bible Church, we stand in a vast company of Christians throughout time in our affirmation of the complete truthfulness of the Bible. Uh, It may help me to explain to you what this doctrine means by touching on a couple of things it doesn't mean. So let me spend a minute or two on that. Number one, the doctrine of inerrancy does not mean that we believe that any given translation of the Bible is perfect and without error. So sorry for those of you that are big fans of a certain translation, the NASB or the ESV or the NIV. Those are all very good translations, but we don't claim that any single translation is perfect. In fact, with any of those translations, I think we could point to passages that say this, this one here appears to be a, a better rendering, a more accurate rendering than this one over here because they're translated by people who are using the best manuscripts at their disposal, but they're still making decisions as they translate it. The doctrine of inerrancy does not hold that any specific translation is perfect. Uh, the, the phrase we use is error-free in the original manuscripts. Um, the theological or the doctrinal word we use for the original manuscripts are the autographs. It's what we call the original, like the actual document that, that, that Paul or, or Moses or Peter wrote on, the autograph. Now, we don't have any of the autographs. So if you're thinking about this, you may be thinking, well, wait a second. You know, you're only claiming complete, full, inerrant truth to the autographs. We don't have the autographs. You're admitting there can be scribal or translational errors. What good is this doctrine of inerrancy anyway? And can we really have confidence that the book, the Bible that you're holding in your lap this morning is an accurate reflection, an accurate translation of the Word of God? That's a great tension to lean into. We're going to address that in a few minutes. I want you to hold that tension for now. So it doesn't mean we believe any given translation is perfect. It also doesn't mean that that every passage should be read the same way. There are many different genres that the Bible was written in. It uses a number of figures of speech. In some places, it uses rounded numbers. There's some unrefined grammar in the Greek or Hebrew. There's colloquial approximations, all the things that you would expect to find in texts that were written in ancient times. I'll, I'll give you a short example. Mark. In chapter 1 of Mark, he's talking about John the Baptist, and he says, all of Jerusalem and the surrounding area was being baptized by Mark. Well, we know that doesn't literally mean every single man, woman, and child. This is the way that Mark was describing a significant event, that all of Jerusalem had heard of this, and many, many of them were going out to be baptized by John. Now, it, it may help us to keep something in mind, that the Bible is technically not a book. It's actually a collection of books. It's a collection of texts. You might sort of think about it as a library. In fact, that's where the word Bible comes from, is this idea of multiple books of a kind of a library that's unified. Now, they tell one consistent story, but they need to be interpreted differently from one another because they were written in different contexts for different purposes. So I like the way that one uh, pastor said this, this is what he wrote, the Bible's 66 individual books run the diverse gamut of writing styles. Poetry, history, biography, church teaching, letters. 
And those books have dozens of authors, from shepherds to prophets to doctors to fishermen to kings. These diverse writers each had very different target audiences, disparate life circumstances, and specific agendas for their work. So we don't approach each book the same way. And this is the, this is the sentence that I like. For the same reason you wouldn't read a poem about leaves the same way you read a botany textbook. You've got to keep in mind the genre of the texts as you're reading it in the Bible. So when we say the Bible is true, we mean that it's true in all that it claims to say. The gold standard for a statement on biblical inerrancy is the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, which was written in 1978. A group of evangelical scholars came together in Chicago, and and they co-labored together and wrote a statement that has kind of become the evangelical definitive definition of what we mean by this doctrine of inerrancy. And among many other things, they say this, Scripture is inerrant in the sense of making good its claims and achieving that measure of focused truth at which its authors aimed. So as you're reading the Bible, you need to ask yourself, what's the intention of this author? When when David writes this in this psalm, what's he intending? Is he attempting to communicate some scientific truth about the sun and the stars? Or is he attempting to stir in me a response to the glory of God? Now, there are many places in Scripture that are intending to communicate literal historic fact, and we interpret those as history. But it's important to keep genre in mind. So... Inerrancy does not mean that we read every text the same way. Now, why do we believe that the Bible is true? Okay, we, we've talked about the what of our belief on the Scripture. It's entirely without error in the original manuscripts. Why do we hold that view? Wouldn't it be easier just to say, well, the important things the Bible teaches are true, but we're not going to claim all these little other details are necessarily true. Wouldn't that be simpler and be easier Why do we believe in inerrancy? I want to give you two primary reasons, and I'll give you a few other secondary reasons, but I think these two are where we want to kind of plant our stake in the ground. Number one, this view is consistent with the Bible's own testimony about itself. If you've been tracking with us through this series, one of the things you've heard a number of times, I think Lloyd originally said it, is any view of the Bible that is less than the Bible's own view of itself is inadequate. We want to shape our opinion about Scripture. We want it to be molded by what Scripture says about itself. So let me read to you six or seven verses. I I could have collected dozens, and I just picked out a few to read to you to communicate what God's Word says about its truthfulness. Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 119.60, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. John 10.35, the scripture cannot be broken. John 17.17, your word is truth. I could keep going on and on. Suffice it to say, the Bible claims truthfulness. It claims purity. You might say it argues for complete perfection. 
Now, why should that matter to us? Isn't that a circular argument? Well, we've talked about that before. If we are lost in the fog, which I would claim I feel more days than not sometimes, we've got to put our faith, we've got to put our confidence in some external thing to us in order to guide us. If we are claiming that this book has complete and utter authority, that it is the highest authority, there is no other higher authority we could hold to or refer to in order to prove the Bible's authority. That's not the only reason why we believe the Bible is true. I want to talk about the second primary reason. that This view of the truthfulness of Scripture is consistent with the character of God himself. Now, during this series, you might find it interesting that we did not put this message as the first, second, or even third message. In fact, I think this is week seven or eight. And you might be thinking, why now are they talking about inerrancy? Isn't that the foundational thing you should say about the Bible? Don't we sort of start with that? I'd say, no, I don't think we start with inerrancy. I'll tell you why. I think inerrancy flows out of what we believe to be true about the source of these words. So do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. The claim that we made about Scripture is the words in this book are as close to God's own voice as His own breath. I think that's the most important and profound claim you can make about the Scripture. It's clearly taught in the Bible, and if you believe that, if you're willing to track with that, then the fact that it's true only makes logical sense because these are the words of a God who is incapable of lying. So what do you believe about the character of the God that you worship? What do you believe about the connection between his words and the book that you're holding in your hand? These become very important questions. I think more important questions even than what is your stance on inerrancy. I think inerrancy is an outflow, a simple logical conclusion of what we believe to be true about the connection between God and his words. Uh, Let me articulate it this way. I came across a, a wonderful definition of inerrancy this week by a British biblical scholar that I really... Uh, respect. His name is Timothy Ward. He's wrote, written a number of books on the scripture, and here's his definition of inerrancy. Inerrancy is no more and no less than a natural implication of the fact that scripture is identified as the speech act of a God who cannot lie and who has chosen to reveal himself to us in words. Natural implication of the fact that we believe these words are the speech act of a God who cannot lie and has chosen to reveal himself to us using words. It's a big reason why we believe the Bible is true. Another way you might think about it, if if you deny the complete trustworthiness of Scripture, you're sort of forced to adopt one of two conclusions. Either one, Scripture is not all from God, or two, God is not always dependable. Those are your choices. So let me sort of summarize the two big primary reasons why we believe that Scripture is inerrant. Number one, it's consistent with the Bible's own testimony about itself. Number two, it's consistent with the character of the author, who is God himself. 
Now, I want, I want to give you some other reasons, too, some secondary reasons. Uh, this kind of touches in the area of apologetics. And the, I, I know the audience now well enough to know there's about half of you that are going to light up in this part of the sermon. The other half of you are going to hit the snooze button, right? And that's okay. Here's how I view apologetics. Follow, po- apologetics serves the purpose of boosting our faith, right? I can't prove to you 100,000 million percent, yes, these words are true, but there's a lot of good evidence, a lot of good reasons to put your trust in them. Let me go over what I'll call four brief faith boosters. Number one, consider the exceptional unity of the human authors. 66 books, 40 authors, written in three languages from all walks of life across three continents, over 1,500 years, in vastly different environments. For the most part, the authors did not know each other, very little collaboration, yet they tell one consistent story. Now, tell me in what other context that kind of agreement and unity is likely. Faith booster number two. Consider the remarkable age and the number of manuscript copies that we have. Now, this one's really helpful for me. I mentioned earlier to hold that tension. Remember, we don't actually have the autographs, the original copies, so how can we have confidence that what we have in front of us is, is, is very accurate or very, very close to what the original said? Well, the Bible is unlike any other ancient text in terms of the age of the manuscripts that we have and the number of manuscripts that we have. Let me give you some brief examples. The earliest copy we have of any of Plato's writing. We have a copy that's dated about 300 years after Plato lived. Our total number of copies, seven. Earliest copy of Julius Caesar's writing, we have a copy dated 1,000 years after Caesar's death. We have 10 copies total. Earliest copy of Aristotle, more than 1,000 years after his death, we have five copies total. You don't hear a whole lot of debate about whether we think the writings of Plato or Caesar or Aristotle are, are, are accurate according to what he actually meant. Now, the data for the New Testament, remarkably different than that. We have copies of the bulk of the New Testament books that are dated 150 years or less than from when they were written. And we don't have just three or four or five. We've got 2,000 ancient Greek manuscripts from the early period of of Christianity that we can examine and compare. In fact, I was reading uh, just this week that they announced that there's been a fragment of the Gospel of Mark that was found just in the last months that early analysis dates it around to 90 AD. Now, what, what this means, if that date is true, which we believe so far that it is, that just about 30 years after the original Gospel of Mark was written, we have a copy. You see how close that is? You see how we can see? Look, it, it, it's true. It matches. Now, Two more that I want to hit, but before I do that, let me just say this. There's a lot said out there. There's a a claim that the biblical text that we hold in our hands has been altered and changed over 2,000 plus years. That argument is becoming less and less credible every year as manuscripts and texts are being unearthed, and there's going to be a lot more to come, I believe. I think we've just scratched the surface of this. Two more brief boosters for your faith. Consider the ongoing discoveries by archaeologists and historians, uh, very similar to discovering new manuscripts. All the time, there are new discoveries made that bolster the historical context in which the scriptures were written. 
And then finally, I wish I could spend more time on all of these, but consider the fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament about the life of Christ. This is remarkable. Dozens of prophecies from where he would be born to how he would be killed, the fact that he would be raised back to life, all of these written hundreds of years before his birth. You just don't find people arguing that the texts of the Old Testament were written after the life of Christ. You just don't find that argument. So we talked about the what, the why. I want to just spend a few minutes now on, on how. How does this make a difference in our lives? How should it make a difference in our lives? I think the best way to do this is to sort of turn around the question or turn around the statement into a question. Here's what I'd ask us, Fellowship Bible Church. How should we position ourselves as we approach this group of texts that we believe are the very words of God? How should we position ourselves? I think it's got to start with a measure of humility. You might say it this way, the doctrine of inerrancy means that the word of God stands over us. We never stand over the word of God. From that place of trust and humility and faith, we can submit ourselves to God's word, not so that we get smarter, not so that our heads get filled with more theology, although that's not a bad thing, right? We submit ourselves more and more to God's word so that it may transform us, so that it may mold us, so that it may shape us, so that it can guide us, it can keep us flying the direction that we need to be flying. God's aim in our lives is always transformation. Now, how does he do this? How does he transform us? I think he transforms us the same way he does most of his work in the world, by speaking through his words. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a separation of the waters. And God said, let us make man in our own image. And God said, you are now declared righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God said, be transformed. And God said, you are a new creation. Do you see how scripture speaks to us, forms us, shapes us, but only as we submit, only as we allow our minds. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This happens as God speaks He speaks to us through his word. And I would say this transformation can only happen if the words are true. You will never be fundamentally, radically transformed by words that are partially true, by truths that are only half true. I I think this is an ongoing process. So here's a little bit of the way that it works. If you don't actually believe that you need transformation, if you don't believe that you need intervention by a Savior, and by the way, I don't just mean at the point of your salvation years ago, I mean right now, if you don't feel like you need to be transformed, then you're actually operating in your own strength. To go back to the analogy of the airplane, you're, you're, you're flying by 
your seat of your pants. You're not trusting your gauges. You're not submitting to your instruments. You're saying, I, I got this. I can, I can feel this. I know it. And for many of us, that's our journey. We put our trust in Christ. We know our salvation is secure. Praise God for that, by the way. And then there's a sort of sense of, okay, I'm going to fly this thing now. No, you need to be transformed. I need to be transformed. Now, some of you are thinking, if I align myself to this book, if I submit to it, how do I know I'm going to like what it says? Or maybe you're thinking, how do I know I'm going to like where it takes me? I'll tell you where it will take you. God's word will always take you to Jesus. Always take you to a place of brokenness before him as you more fully understand your bankruptcy, as you more fully understand that even your righteousness is as filthy rags. But God's word will not leave you there. God's word will also always take you to the acceptance and new life that is promised to us through the gospel. That's where this goes. That's where the gauges take us. That's where they direct us. God has in mind for you flourishing. As you put faith in Christ, we become to be transformed more like him, who, by the way, was the fullest picture of man fully alive the earth has ever seen. That's where this book takes us, to the image of Jesus Christ, to the transformation that God desires for you. And by the way, this is what we do together as a community every Sunday. Right? We come together, we sing together, we worship together, we hear God's word together. This is why we preach the way we preach. We preach expositionally. We take this text seriously, not just so you can be smarter theologians, but so that you will be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that you will see your deep need, that you will fall again at the cross on a daily basis and then be renewed, be transformed. This is what I need. This is what you need. This is what we need together. We need this communally. We need this individually. Uh, let me give you two points of, of practical application just as we wrap up. Number one, Bill two weeks ago challenged us to be reading this book a little bit every day. Uh, maybe you've done this. Maybe you haven't. Grace abounds, right? I will renew the challenge. I'll say, let's read even a short part of this book every day between now and the end of the series just to get us going on this. There's two weeks left. Next week and the following week. Two weeks. Let's lean into this a little bit. If you miss a day, just get back up and go again the next day. So number one, we need, we need to read. But read for transformation, not just information. Number two, we want to give you a chance, um, and, and this will be an ongoing thing we'll do multiple times, I believe, but we want to give you a chance to learn how to develop a rhythm and a system of reading the Bible. So next Sunday night, we're going to have an equipping workshop right here. The theme is going to be developing a personal Bible study system that works for you. I think we have a slide about that, if you could put that on the screen. Now, here's the deal, okay? I over-promised and under-delivered, which I hate doing, but I said, all right, first service, you guys are getting, you know, Sign up for this. Well, they only left 12 slots, all right? 
So here's the thing, for those of you that are disappointed, if you don't get a chance today to sign up, we will do this again. So give us a couple of months, we'll come back to this because it feels like there's a need for it. So this is a two-hour event, it's going to be right here. We have very limited childcare available, so if you want to, right after the service, myself and Dan Hickling, who's a member of our body, has a lot of pastoral experience, he's taught this workshop in a number of other places. We will be over here to my right during the community meal. I'll have this pulpit, this podium over here with the sign-up sheets, and you can sign up, fill one of those remaining 12 spots and for the rest of you we'll, we'll, we'll hit it again later on so read come to the workshop if you're able to but whatever you're doing submit yourselves to the true word of God so that we will be transformed let's bow together as we pray our father we love you if we're honest it's really hard to submit ourselves um, that doesn't feel sometimes like the direction that we want to go. God, my prayer for this body is that you would increase our confidence in you, uh, that you would connect your words, your work in our lives to what we're reading in the scripture, that we would have confidence as we come together as a body, week in, week out. Help us to love each other well. Help us to love you well. Even as we are about to enter into a time of worship, we're going to sing one more song that's going to proclaim our need Father, may we sing these words with integrity. And I believe as we do that, as we submit ourselves and proclaim our need for you, you will meet us. I have full confidence in that. We thank you for all you're doing. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your grace in our lives. It doesn't matter how many times we fall down. Your love for us is secure through Jesus Christ. We give this moment to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.